Good morning, Christ Church. Good to be with you today in worship. Um, as many of you know, Father Cliff returned from sabbatical last week. Uh, it was good to hear from him and to see him again. Uh, but then he left. And he took Father Matt with him. So I don't know what to tell you. Here I am. And uh, uh, they'll, they'll be back next week. Uh, and for the parish retreat, which we're really excited about. Um, this is the last Sunday in our series on the book of Revelation. So we're in the final chapters, and last week Father Matt preached about uh, Revelation 19 and that, that picture of, uh, and the language about the lake of fire, the burning sulfur, the heavenly warrior who comes down with that robe, dressed in the robe, dipped in his own blood, the sword coming out of his mouth, eyes blazing like fire. And the message was that we, we were assured of God's judgment, yes, and that's a good thing, but also God's mercy and reminded that God's mercy is always more than we could ever expect or imagine. And judgment part two, as we're looking at today, is just looking more into what, what is this future, this hope, this destination? Where are we headed? And how does it inform the way we're living in the present? Let's pray. God, you are our hope. Strengthen this hope in us, O oh Lord, and assure us through your word this morning of your goodness. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, there is this intriguing uh, phrase, quote, that, that's spray-painted on the back of Christ Church on the southeast corner. Uh, and it's, it faces Cesar Chavez. If you're coming from the coffee shop, you'd see it on the wall there. It's been there a, a while, and I think it was even there early on, and then we painted over it, and then it reappeared. <laughs> but we've left it there. And you can see this same quote, the same statement around Austin, central Austin in particular, and it seems to be a local project. I don't see it anywhere else as I search Google images. And so it's, 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 it's interesting. And, you know, you can barely see it, actually, I'm realizing on the screen. But it says, the only magic I still believe in is love. Now, uh, this is probably, in some ways, a critique a critique, it's on a church, that's interesting, a critique of the church maybe, critique of organized religion, critique of Christianity, maybe of God altogether, or anything supernatural, uh, kind of a rejection, maybe a dismissal, and yet it's also, it's also an affirmation, it's also an expression of hope, it's a confession, and it's no, it's no small confession, Actually, I don't think. Um, what, what kind of love is it talking about? We don't, we don't know. I don't know what, what whoever wrote this was thinking necessarily. And maybe it is just talking about uh, romantic love or love between two people, love between friends, between siblings, between parent, child, husband, wife. Um, but it could also be drawing on, hoping for, reaching out in grasp of something bigger than that a big story about love, a kind of love that transcends, a love that has its origins and its source in something absolute or ultimate or universal, that kind of force or energy. Maybe it's, maybe it's talking about that kind of love. And if it is, I would say that's not a small thing. That's not insignificant to believe in love in this world that we live in. One of the, uh, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was a, was a man named Hans Urs von Balthasar, a Swiss, Swiss Catholic thinker who wrote 
uh, way too much. Like, he's just one of those guys that you just, you just, how do you, you don't understand. And, and, and at some point, people who write that much figure out, okay, I should probably simplify, uh, narrow down, get a concise statement that captures the essence of my thought. Uh, so he did that, finally, in, 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 in this book. Uh, and this is someone who, uh, von Balthasar, he, he, he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He knew the tradition. He knew so much about philosophy and literature. And yet he had the, the audacity uh, to say this at the same time. With so many words seemingly needing to be written, he could at the same time say, love alone is credible. Love alone is credible. And of course, as a, as a Christian theologian, he meant by that not just any vague spiritual energy kind of love. He meant the love of God in Jesus Christ made known to us through the scriptures and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the love he was talking about. But it's still a very bold claim, isn't it? To say that all the other things he's talked about, everything else we can learn or know, it's not credible compared to love. This is, this is, in many ways, the claim of the book of Revelation, is that at the end of the day, our hope, final justice, final judgment, final truth, final mercy, it all hangs on the love of God in Christ, the power over sin and death, mercy and justice held together in this slain lamb who's on the throne. And that's no small thing to believe in. In fact, it's it's, uh, it's difficult sometimes to believe in that, I think. It's not easy to trust in this big story in our time. Now, it was hard for the early church, certainly, to believe in this story. That's why they needed it, to hear it, to be encouraged. They were facing all kinds of trials and tribulations and pressure to assimilate and persecution and suffering and sacrifice, and they were longing and they were asking and they were wondering, when is Jesus going to return? Surely it can't be that long because this is hard. And we've been talking about that some throughout this series, the way that this, uh, this scripture encouraged the early Christians. But I think it's also hard for us today, uh, maybe just in a different way, uh, to, believe in this, to believe in this story. Now, there is still persecution. Christians around the world are still suffering, and it's not uncommon for there to be martyrdom. And we've talked about that as well throughout the series. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. But it's also true that Christians in our context uh, struggle in, a, in a, just a different kind of way to believe, to believe in this story and to not uh, cave in to the pressures around us. The, uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a book that's been talked about quite a bit the last decade or so called A Secular Age. And he was trying to, in that book, explain what's going on today in culture and what's happened, what's changed in recent years in our world. And so, of course, he talks about the fact that, we, and we all see this, beliefs have changed in society in general. People believe different things nowadays than they used to. That's expected, maybe. But they also believe differently. It's not just what we believe that has changed. It's, it's how we believe. Many of our beliefs, all of our beliefs even, that are bigger beliefs, that are more permanent beliefs, that are trying to grab for something universal and, and that isn't changing, to talk about God or about truth or, or what is good, these beliefs are contested. These kinds of beliefs feel 
more fragile and tentative and tenuous than ever before. Even among Christians, our beliefs feel threatened, feel less secure, feel more um, affected by doubt. There's a, there's a popularizer of Taylor's work named James, Jamie Smith. Maybe you've heard his name. He wrote a book a, a while back called How Not to Be Secular. Uh, and yeah, the not was in parentheses, cleverly. And he said, he said this about uh, what Taylor's saying. He says, the secular age is a level playing field. We're all, we're all trying to make sense of where we are, even why we are. And it's not easy for any of us. Now, uh, you may not all feel that way or identify with this. Depends on age and background and experience and all of that. And that's okay if you don't if you don't experience this, and that's really good if you don't experience this, but increasingly I think many of us do, even Christians, experience this. Uh, I, I, know that, I know that I do, and I say that as someone who, I can't remember a time when I wasn't, when I didn't think of myself as a Christian. I haven't had what I would call a crisis of faith, per se, ever, and yet I still feel this reality, this, this struggle of trying to make sense of why we are and where we are and uh, my, my faith can feel just more fragile um, in an age when, when belief altogether is, is constantly being challenged. Especially when it comes to the future. Especially when it comes to thinking about the future and where we're going and what we can hope in and what is really secure, what is really firm. Because isn't that what Revelation is trying to disclose to us and assure us about is that we're going to be okay, everything is going to be okay even though right now it doesn't feel like it. It's, it's difficult to feel assured of that, to, to have constant, steady faith and trust in that promise and in this picture as our destination. You'll see it uh, in, in popular culture too, don't you? I mean, the, the, the rise of, of dystopian and post-apocalyptic media and entertainment and literature is exponential. It's not totally new, but it's, it's growing. Now it's everywhere. Um, people are thinking, people are, are obsessing about this, and it, there's all kinds of worries and fears about the future. Maybe it for a while has been something like nuclear war. Increasingly, maybe it's robots, artificial intelligence, aliens, zombies, <laughs> whatever can uh, take over the world. Maybe it's our own consumptive habits and the threats to the environment and the need to uh, escape the world and find life somewhere else. You know, as someone who has young children, I, I think about the future for them. I'm sure many of you can relate, even just as you think about the next generation. What kind of world are people going to grow up in? What's it going to be like? Some parents, some people in our society even ask, or just people, not parents, should we have children if we can? How many? There's population explosion. There's limited resources. There, how's this going to work? Is that even responsible? I have concerns about those questions, but I also, I'm, I'm sympathetic to an extent. So despite this cynicism though, this negativity, this uh, dystopian outlook on things, we're, we're still trying to, uh, it's, it's like we're hardwired for hope, even when our hopes are frustrated. 
And so in some ways, the dystopia and this, this imagination, this, this outlook that's so negative is an is a exercise, is a practice in lament. It's crying out. It's, it's trying to make sense of the chaos. It's not, and, and we're not good at it. We don't know how to lament well in culture. And so it, it looks, I mean, we're having a hard time. Right? We're in a state of despair, you might say. Collectively, it looks like. But even that despair is, is rooted in a deep-seated still maybe remaining expectation that it's not supposed to be like this. We're supposed to have something good to long for and to hope for. And so that's why we, we, um, we refuse to totally uh, live without hope. We can't actually live without hope. So we're going to cling to something. And that's what we're doing right now, I think, is grasping. What can we, what's strong, what's steady? Is anything, can anything be trusted? And of course, the answer to to uh, pessimism is not, it's not to go back to optimism, right? To swing to the other side. It might seem like it. Let's be glass half full people instead of half empty. Isn't that what we just need to be somewhere? Or maybe we just need to be realistic in the middle somewhere. Like all, of these, all of these approaches to um, our future ultimately are based in, well, it's, it's the problem that we just saw in the gospel reading, right? With the Pharisee. They're based in a confidence in what we can do. They're based in a hope that is fashioned by ourselves, by our own achievements, by our own progress, by our own cleverness and good ideas and science and technology. When were we more optimistic about the future? Probably when things looked like we were going to be able to make them turn out better. Is that better, finally, for us to go back to that kind of thinking and that outlook? Oh, we've got, it. We've got control now. <laughs> After we lost it for a little while there, you know, this, this picture in Revelation is a different sort of hope entirely, isn't it? It's neither optimism nor pessimism. It's, it's God's future breaking in to ours from beyond, from outside of our control and our grasp and our anticipation. What does it say in Revelation 21? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple in the city. The city does not need the sun or the moon. The very creator of the sun and moon can give it its light. The glory of God gives it light. The lamb is its lamp. Chapter 22 goes on to describe the river of the water of life flowing down in the middle of the great street of the heavenly city. This river nourishes trees of life that bear, bear 12 crops fruit yielding every month, not once, not twice, not even four seasons, but every month. This picture, I mean, this is, we don't appreciate this naturally as much since we're, most of us are not farmers. Even an industrial farmer probably doesn't as, as much as someone in the ancient world or someone in an agrarian context or someone who's a sharecropper or a, or a peasant who's wondering, where is my food going to come from? You can't be sure about the next harvest. What is this promise of abundance in the face of such scarcity that we live with? The leaves of this tree, of these trees of life are for also the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. That's a big idea. You know, there's so much to try to get our minds around the healing of the nations, the conflicts in the world, um, the wars ongoing. We know about them. They're, they've always been there. Um, I think about just something 
a little closer to home even, you know, ever since it happened more than 100 days ago, uh, I haven't been able to go very long without being haunted again by the, the news about the, the, the school shooting in Uvalde. It's, you know, it's close to us, isn't it? And we're sadly all too familiar with school shootings. And there's much being discussed about it right now, and as, it sh as there should be. It's really taken a toll on our, on our state. We're, we're reeling from it still, it seems. But just two weeks ago, there was news of another attack that didn't make as many headlines because it wasn't here, it was in Thailand. Maybe some of you saw that headline. Uh, a daycare was um, attacked by a parent of a child in the daycare. And more kids died in that attack than even in the Uvalde shooting and adults. I mean, this is a, this is a country that has uh, pretty strict gun control, too. The culture's different. It's not the same. I mean, they have some of the same problems, but it's a different sort of place. And this is not a comment on what policies we should pursue to, to reduce gun violence. Let's, let's do what we can to reduce gun violence. Everything we can. But if anything, that story, that, 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 that attack, it just shows how much we, we finally do not control this stuff. There is, there is an evil that still has a footing in this world that is just too much to bear. What comfort is there for those who lost their children in that attack? What hope do they have? Uh, there, is no, there is no end to that sorrow. In Isaiah 60, our passage from Old Testament this morning, it reads, See... Verse 2, see, darkness covers the earth. Darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the peoples. Yo, we have, to, we have to name that. We have to stare that in the face as Christians. It's not comfortable. But the hope has to come to face with the, the real depths of the despair that we experience and then it says, the Lord, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you, all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Think about the lost and fallen children returning. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant, your heart will throb and swell with joy. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Your days of sorrow will end. Dare we hope in this? What, what a claim we are making. What a what a faith that we have as Christians. But you know what? Without the slain lamb on the throne, we don't have any hope. This is our only hope. It's the only hope that makes sense. It's the only hope that there is. The one who derives his authority from on high, but also from the depths to which he was willing to go for our sake and the things he encountered. 
the one who conquered his enemies by being willing to die for them. That's the only thing that's going to triumph over this history of suffering. The slain land on the throne. He's the only one who can heal the nations, who can restore and mend and can hold all of our suffering and loss and finally show that it wasn't in vain. Uh, sometimes, sometimes Christians, we, we get criticized for this. We get, we get um, blamed for uh, pacifying ourselves with pie-in-the-sky theology and with uh, otherworldly escapist visions of the future, you know. Karl Marx, that famous quote, the, that religion is the opiate of the people, that it, that it suppresses what would otherwise be energy and anger for resistance and, uh, and uprising to throw off the chains of injustice. Theologian and spiritual writer, African-American pastor Howard Thurman once said something a little different about this. Uh, he spoke out against this criticism. He said that rather than, than pacifying, for example, the slaves in America, the African-American spirituals they would sing, the, the gospel hymns, these songs, these declarations of hope, of Christian hope, of a Christian future, they gave endurance, they gave courage, they gave hope that even the cruelest conditions could not crush Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by the words of uh, theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who's one of the foremost uh, recent thinkers about, about hope, about uh, what's called in Christian theology eschatology, this, this where are we going, what's our future, what's our destination. He says that faith, Christian faith, wherever it develops into hope, I think that's an interesting way to think about it too, like our faith developing into hope causes not rest but unrest. Not patience, but impatience. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it and to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world. And this last sentence is a doozy. I'll read it slowly. For, for, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. So yes, we, we hold fast to this hope. We cling to it desperately. We believe in it together even when our belief is weak and tepid and kind of beat up. We believe nonetheless, and this belief sustains us. It holds us. It energizes and animates our discipleship when we're faced with adversity and doubt. Nothing else is credible, y'all, save for the love of God and Jesus Christ and the slain land on the throne. We remember and pray those words in closing. Uh, recite them to ourselves from the psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.